Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly live stream Q&A here on SFIA, where we'll be getting to all of your questions about the show and the channel in general in just a moment. Uh, first let me introduce my wife and co-host Sarah Fowler Arthur, who will be taking your questions from the chat that the mods are going to send to her and asking me those questions. And if you're looking for the best way to get a question in, uh, one, try to phrase it kind of clearly uh, without too many typing errors or grammar errors, and three, avoid hot button controversial social topics. And other than that, we can pretty much go ahead and get started. Did you want to start by telling the audience about our visit to the um, Astrobotica Museum? Astrobotics, yeah. We actually, um, for those of you who might have noticed on the last episode, I mentioned I was going to go give a talk at the Carnegie Science Center again, and just down the road from them is the Astrobotics facility, which also has a museum attached to it. Is it Moonshot? Yes, the Moonshot, Moonshot Museum. Yeah, Moonshot Museum. And while we were there, we saw the Peregrine Lander for the moon. That's going to be launching on May 4th. And I think we were probably the last people to actually get in to see this tourist. They were shutting down for that weekend, and the governor had been there the previous day. So it was shipping out that weekend, and uh, we'll be launching, hopefully successfully, May 4th. And uh, that would be a very nice lander going back to the moon. It was a lot of fun to actually see it inside that approach to the kind of a uh, control center, mission center, and museum and assembly yard all at once. It's kind of a nice approach, so it was a fun visit. Absolutely, it was definitely cool, and they plan to make more rovers, so if you're in Pittsburgh, <laughs> it's a great place to check out. Yeah, that's actually a really great organization. I should probably talk about it some more sometime. But... So we have a question from Raven, mm -hmm. wondering if it would be difficult to walk in a pressurized moon base. In a pressurized moon base? Um, the the thing about walking on the moon is the one hand you got that much lower gravity, where it's like one-sixth of normal. And on the other hand, you're walking with like a 200-pound suit on that has got all that inertial mass. You know, your inertial mass, the ability to shove things, still takes just as much effort. Just the gravity is lower. So it is like walking in water, basically. Uh, you have a very slow fall rate, but you have a hard time pushing forward. Um, if you're inside a pressurized dome, uh, or anything like that, they didn't have much problem walking outside the, um, the pod, the Apollo pods. they very tight spaces, obviously, but moving around wasn't really that hard there. Everything functions the way you expect it to. You fall down when you're supposed to, just slower. And uh, it's obviously kind of hard to step and walk in that, but nobody's actually walked around inside a pressurized environment of any size before on, in that low gravity. So it's a little hard to say for sure how long it would take to adjust to that if you could. But I suspect you'd find it was uh, very light-footed, uh, but probably something you'd adjust to walking in after a while. So uh, another follow-up to that was, do you think there would be any complications to living in a moon base that people wouldn't necessarily think of, or whether you would need to add some form of artificial gravity? Well, I think that's uh, that gravity is kind of hitting the point out there. You, you think you could walk faster in a low-gravity environment, but you can't. You already have good musculature for running here, and, and if you're running, one of the things that slows you down is how far it's your strides takes before your foot lands again so you can propel yourself, you are still going slow, so you have to very carefully push more sideways than up in a low-gravity environment, and that's going to make it a little bit harder to run in a lot of cases. Um, 
and just kind of generally maneuvering the thing's going to take longer to land and slow down a lot. Um, on the other hand, other than that, there shouldn't be too many big life changes. Um, you're not going to get a lot of direct sunlight because it's it's one of those situations where there's no atmosphere to break it down, so you'd only have glass domes, and you can have those, but you probably don't want to have anyone actually living in there. You'd be more likely to have a garden you want all that worried about getting damaged there, you know, your meditation garden as well, as opposed to your big food garden out in the sunlight. Other things you'd probably be uh, putting a big metal dirt cover over top of and bouncing sunlight in from the side instead, so you could limit what the uh, frequencies were and, and help with micrometeors and dust. Um, the biggest one that they encountered that was a big surprise with the moon landings was that dust, too. It's um, really sharp. It's never been weathered. It gets into everything. It's staticky, cling. So those are the big challenges we've had. But the other thing is mostly that we just don't know what they're going to be. The dust surprised us completely during the Apollo missions. Um, and I think that we'd find the daylight aspect also very troubling because it gets dark for two weeks at a time. And it's just going to... Take adjustment to the fact that you're basically living inside a facility. So think of like when you're in the wintertime in northern climates and you just don't go out very much and a lot of times it's more artificial daylight than it is the real thing. It's going to be a lot like that a lot of the time. So harder environment to live into. Wolf Killer Q says, once automation becomes widespread, how easy would it be for a person or a small group of people to get an O'Neill cylinder and set up their own independent or autonomous society within the solar system? Um, you know, the biggest aspect of that is, is is how good is the automation, how much the regulation process. If it gets to be really easy to do, and everyone starts doing it, then you do have someone who's going to eventually want to step in and say, hey, look, these are the limits on, on what you can do with that. You don't really worry about where people are building in your pioneering era where there's nobody within a mile of where they set their shack at. But when you have a you know a tight riverbed in the city village, then suddenly people care about where you're building your house and how it's kept. Um, I think that if you have automation that's good enough that you can reliably expect the machines to be able to extract your aluminum or steel and make it actually into long pads that they can put in place to basically form the hull, at that point in time, I think it's cheap enough that people could start really landscaping for... I don't want to say the same price they could here on Earth, but the point where you'd probably be looking at something like a more expensive suburban area, and that's where you expect to see it rolling in. Um, probably good enough automation that you'd have very high power abundance too, because so much what you need for a solar economy in space uh, is needed on the front end of being able to make something like an O'Neill cylinder, because it's so much easier to make a bunch of reflective mirrors and panels than it is to make a good sturdy bit of hull to walk on. So. We have a super chat today, $5 from Christian Corello. Thank you, Christian. If wormholes exist and can be artificially created, could they be used for interstellar communication if physical travel through them proves impossible? Um, you know, that's tricky because there's a possibility with a wormhole that you could send material through, but for, for causality's sake, it scrambled all the patterns in it. So stuff was coming through, but it wasn't coming through in a pattern, in which case you can't use it for... Um, transmission um although you say well if i can send matter through the thing then i should always be able to find some way to transmit with it because even if i can't send a signal through i could send uh, you know pulses through instead you know just a very long telegraph of it um it's one of those things of what particular type of impossible are we talking about here um you also think is if i can send a real signal through then why can't i send a copy of someone's mind through if i can scan someone digitally why can't i send that through too and that gets kind of tricky. We looked at more on our teleportation episode. 
we only talk about like a digital copy of someone's mind though and emphasis copy because if you actually want to send all the state bits for someone's individual atoms you need more bandwidth than the entire planet has nowadays in order to send it over like a million years for one person so you do have to you'll be doing a compressed file so to speak <laughs> Albert Jackson says, Hi, Isaac and Sarah. I'm taking an international trip soon, which had me thinking. Once we inhabit the rest of the solar system, how will the logistics of commonly traveling between planets be figured out, such as optimal orbital transfers, travel time, etc.? Um, it, it always depends on what you're optimizing for, I suppose. Uh, let's see. If you're just trying to like save fuel or something like the home and transfer orbits, that might be how you move metals and other things that you just don't care if they arrive quickly, like ice. If you try to move passengers, you're optimizing for how much people are willing to spend on fuel for that minimum bond time. Um, in which case, you might have some very specific windows and lanes. I maybe think, also some comfort. Yeah. You know, well, <laughs> might want a snack and a drink and yeah. maybe well, a little... I think even with very fast travel, unless you're teleporting, so to speak, um, which you might do digitally... Um, you you have the issue that travel inside solar systems takes a period of uh, many days to a few weeks at highest acceleration. And if you are accelerating the entire time during that burn and torn maneuver that we see in the expanse and other things where energy is basically free, um, you find that even getting something close like Mars still takes a few days, and even getting something in Pluto only takes 21 days and less if you want to accelerate faster. So that's your time, your travel times. And so... You definitely need an in-service meal, and you probably don't look at like you're not sitting in seats. Unless you're going to the moon, which you might be able to do very quickly in a few hours like a plane, you are going to not be in seats with each other, but sleeper cars like you'd have on longer train rides um, back in the day. And then it's also going to be, what's your cabin look like? And thankfully, one thing about space is there's no air friction, so you can build very big. It's mass that you issue, not space. And air is cheap, right? So... I think bigger spaceships that were going very fast might have some fairly nice cabin space, but I think you'd find that almost all the really nice accommodations were virtual and electronic, not, uh, you know, you're not going to have football fields and they'll play on. <laughs> Nulono says, what do you think is the future of ground-based transportation? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I come from the Midwest, and I'm in a rural area, um, you know, where there, it's hard to go more than half a mile without seeing a horse. So to me, <laughs> <laughs> cars, trucks, these are things that are just part of day-to-day -day life. You have them, um, and they are they are attached to you emotionally as a sense of freedom, right? Very connected to you, because if you don't have those, you can't go anywhere. And so it's rooted at a subconscious level, you need that. Inside a city, you've got your feet, the bus, your bike, etc. Those are much more the sense of freedom. Um, and so your modes of travel depend obviously on what your economy and technology support, but also on where you are that will not change. If you're living out in the countryside and you almost have to, even like a Nicomopolis, you still have relatively low population density, you're still going to have those ground transports, although that might be, you know, it probably would be an electric car. I think battery technology has to get a little bit better to phase those in completely. And um, I don't know if that would work very well for air travel. Like the idea of having your own flying car, we all want one of those. Um, they are working on one. Oh, yeah. I saw a mock-up of a five-person one uh, oh. just this past week. I think the biggest one on that is how do you power them. We talked about that in space planes. Is um, So you're not carrying around all that weight. And, and again, fuel is a huge issue for planes and helicopters. Uh, it's even worse you try to do something like that battery-powered because mm -hmm. batteries are not as energy-dense per mass as uh, not even close to what we get from chemical fuels. I think our best are like uh, five or six percent, 
right? And the USB way was. So if you want to do something that's battery powered, what you're really looking at is beaming energy to them by microwave to turn the blades, you know, spin your blades, etc. And you have some batteries on board that provide the backup while the signal is reattaching if something happens, get lost, you know, enough to land the thing with, so to speak. Um, and I think that we'd probably see something like that if people decide they really want to have air travel, which we might switch over to because I think a lot of people might say, well, we like having roads, but they cost a lot to maintain. And they, you know, if we were to get rid of those, then we can all have flying cars. That is technology that's viably possible, but it does require better energy production first. So, Mr. Mahan asks if it is possible to bend reality or warp, warping reality with Matryoshka brain processing power. Um, yes, it is absolutely possible. Uh, and I was just thinking about jetpacks and how you make them economically viable, <laughs> technically feasible. Uh, everyone wants their jetpacks. So how do you warp reality so that you could have something that be viable, a lower gravity maybe? Can you warp reality at all? And the answer is yes, you can warp reality. Uh, in what ways? We have an episode coming up on that. I think it's maybe it already came out, warping reality specifically. Uh, it's either coming up or has come out recently, and I've forgotten which. And in there, we talk about the various ways in which you can warp reality. You know, this upcoming week's episode, the Advanced Space Drive Compendium, has five or six different ship designs that are entirely theoretical about how you move a ship by warping reality. And the big one is always gravity. You can warp space and time with gravity, but that's not the extent of that. We know we can warp space and time, and we know that gravity does not necessarily have to be omnidirectional. Uh, we've seen that with the you know, collapsing black holes. So Matrioscopy should be able to figure out how to do those things and do them very well in a very calculated fashion, and thus should be able to actually take advantage of that. But if there's other ways in which you could warp reality, though physically possible, a giant brain powered by an entire star should be able to figure out how to do them. So if it is possible, they know how to do it. That's probably the key thing they are. So Cletus223 asks if there are any theoretical ways to improve radiative cooling. I've only ever seen large flat panels, he says. For radiative cooling? For radiative cooling, yes. Um, so you can always still do the crinkle cut. You know, if you look at a lot of heat sinks, they don't have a very flat surface. They actually have tons of things sticking up to increase the surface area. You do have limitations of that with radiating heating because you have to still move the heat around to all that surface area reasonably evenly, which doesn't happen as easily as people would think. But at a large scale, you could have something like a very um, spiky surface. We had this with the, uh, I call it the Dyson spike, was the one of all the animations and mega structures. It looks like a mace head off of, uh, you know, like a morning star or a mace. And it's just a spiky ball with lots of surface area coming out of its cones. Um, something like that, if you have, you know, radios going up inside it to move the heat to them, it would let you move heat out at angles. You are not able to just do that infinitely, though, because the thing is, if your material is emitting infrared heat, even if the things that it's going to be bouncing at light off of do not absorb infrared themselves, because you got all these crinkly things emitting light at each other, if it's reflective, you still have some absorption. So you can only get so much surface area to blow heat away, but fundamentally, you aim for a bigger surface area, and then you aim for something like a vein that will inside like we have, capillaries that will move heat to it quickly to allow you to get it as hot as you can and radiate out as quick as you can. Uh, the next question is from Kuda Bilka. Mm -hmm. How difficult would making a clone with all of a person's memories be? Duplicate. Um, well, that depends first on if we were actually just saying we're going to grow somebody in a vat and then like not put nanobots in their heads or program their brain. Um, if you're going to try to duplicate somebody, I think your better bet is probably to just Android body them and copy that in there. But uh, 
because if you're trying to copy someone's brain state specifically, they are neurons, and just copying the neurons is probably a lot trickier than we think it is. There's probably more data on them than we think. Um, you're talking about 100 billion of those things that have to be in a reasonably precise fashion. You know, your brain changes, so you don't have to maybe nail it 100%, but better be at least 99.9%, right? Um, yeah, you're trying to program those all in the right place, moving stuff around, generating heat, while you're transferring someone's consciousness in there. That That's kind of hard to do. It's a lot easier to work in something that's not really dynamic, like a solid state hard drive, you know? So that is generally part of why we tend to think of that option as opposed to duplicating someone organically. But it should be possible, again, with nanotech, and, you know, if you can unfreeze someone while you make their brain the right way and then just bring them up, it's just... Gradualism is what we usually think of as a nice way to continue someone's mind, and that's kind of hard to do if you're busy uh, trying to put someone's brain in there while you only have part of it in there at once, and they're awake and alive and conscious. That's seems a little bit hard to do properly. We have a super chat of $20 from Miami's Last Capitalist. Thank you. Lots of our aspiring writers are in your community. If we ever publish, how would you like us to homage SFIA? Should there be lots of Isaac-class battleships in lots of our stories? Laughing out loud. Um, you know, my friend Kerry Allen Stone, he asked if you know he could put something in there as an homage to me. I said, well, if you name him Isaac, everyone's going to assume you're talking about Asmov. And if you name him Arthur, everyone's going to assume you're talking about Clark. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, you know either way, so feel free to, but it's nothing I care about one way or another. So he actually took a step further and actually named the character Isaac Arthur. He changed the original character of the book to that name, so... I have one of the real first edition prints, but it had a different name for the character. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're suggesting that all of these authors need to no. name them Isaac. If, if you're trying to sneak a little subtle one in there, you probably could just create a coin like you know, the uh, SFI, the SFIA author or something like that. You could get it in there. I, I mean, it's, but to be honest, remember that in a lot of these cases, if we're like, well, I want to make sure Isaac gets a note for you know this cool idea I borrowed, I borrowed the idea too from someone else. So. Yeah, I'd rather you did a homage. Like, if you're going to have a gigantic, you know, mega structure around a black hole, name it after Paul Borch. You know, they, that's that's where that idea comes from, first and foremost. Um, and uh, I think the problem with trying to homage me again is unless you're going to be very explicitly Isaac Arthur, people will assume you mean asthma or clock. And to be honest, I'm fine with that because they deserve a lot more homage than they get. <laughs> so, Scooter GSP says, what sci-fi spaceship depicted in a visual media do you feel is the most realistic in terms of following real world laws of physics and engineering principles which spaceship um which sci-fi because well right because you have a lot of range there and you, you've got you got to the ones people likely actually recognize you got like the um rick and morty garbage ship that is not realistic but that uh, might be your favorite. No, <laughs> it has a lot of a uh, lot of up armament on it, though. Um, the Battlestar Galactica from the remake, I thought, was a, a pretty good look at how that would be, um, depending on your technology levels. Uh, the Enterprise has never struck me as very realistic, especially because they get the trailers were like, "Hey, the power went off, and now we're all freezing death and suffocating." Five minutes later, even though there should be enough air on this ship for us to live for months, and this ship should take literally years to cool down to freezing based on how big it is. <laughs> um, but the gravity stays on. The artificial gravity stays on, and that's a special effects thing. Um, the Firefly from Serenity, uh, or rather I should say Serenity from the show Firefly. Um, I like that one. Um, I feel that there's a realism to the day-to-day -day life of a crew there. 
Um, the Expanse has some more realistic ships too, but I think it depends on what we really mean by realistic. Because like we're talking about, I have a gigantic spaceship. What kind of crew situations that look like? Then something like Warhammer Forty Thousand has a better one because then they got crews of hundreds of thousands, same as the Star Destroyers do in Star Wars. They go for a big ship, and it's actually got crew on board it. But then, and then the idea of how much you actually devote it, you see that with the Nostalgia Infinity from Revelation Space, where they get some miles-long ship and a crew of six, and it only needs one of them. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's designed to carry hundreds of thousands of people, but it really doesn't need much crew. That's when it's most of the time it's empty. So each of these things kind of depend on what the technology is, how realistic they are. Kind of the same as, is a sailboat realistic? Yes. Is a freighter realistic? Yes. Is an oil tanker realistic? Yes. Is a battleship realistic? Yes. Do any of these things look at all like each other? No. <laughs> so. On that note, Eric Herzl asks, what kind of radioactivity would you expect from an antimatter drive? Would it be safe for flight on Earth? Uh, from from antimatter drive, kind of radiation? Mm -hmm. um, it depends on what the antimatter particles are. If you've got... If you got anti-positrons and anti-electrons, which getting out the back side of the thing is um, 0.51 MeV uh, gamma ray photons coming out the back, which is not the worst radiation in the world, but it's not something that you would want to be standing behind, although the engines are powerful enough for any, anything you're going to use to lift off this planet is going to kill you if you're standing in the rocket flight. That's, that's how that works, unless it's some kind of anti-gravity engine. Um, I'm not sure that it really mattered that much of it was gamma rays coming out the back of it because it was going to be absorbed into a concrete pad and then later into air. But uh, it wouldn't really be that healthy. Um, if it's if it's anti-protons or anti-neutrons, for instance, uh, then that's 2,000 times more powerful gamma rays coming out the back side of that. Um, and you know the the damage you get from radiation is is less to do with how much raw power is coming out and how much raw energy is in each individual photon. Um, you know, it's the difference between getting it rained on and having a bowling ball land on your head. You might have a pound of water land on your head during a rainstorm, but you're fine. But you're not if somebody drops a bowling ball on your head. And that's <laughs> kind of what radiation does to organic material. Uh, so I would say antimatter is an example of an engine that is a perfectly fine power source, but not on Earth. You instead use it to run power generation, to run an air-breathing jet, so you got to a very high altitude, I think. Your comment about a given value of safety yeah. <laughs> comes well, to mind, and I had to laugh because the next question is a super chat of $20 from Not Provided, and he says, I always notice you like to say things like you don't personally think alien civilizations exist and that wormholes aren't possible, etc. However, you always are talking about it. Are you just trying to not get your hopes up? Um, a little bit. I mean... A lot of what this show, when you get right around to it, besides the fact that I just enjoy doing a lot of stuff with sci-fi myself personally, I'm a big fan of it, kind of the approach to the show is let's let's teach science and, and scientific thinking and, and kind of a, you know, look at what the future might really be like in the context of what people actually know and love, which is sci-fi. It is so much easier to explain these things in that context than to get a chalkboard out and scratch it up on the board for an hour with a bunch of equations. Um, when that means you have to talk about ideas that people find interesting. And, of course, what people tend to find interesting is how do I get to another planet in my lifetime without having to have a trillion-dollar spaceship either, which means a wormhole is interesting to us, a warp drive is interesting to us, a uh, stargate is interesting to us. And uh, then I have to come by and say, well, here's how it might work, if it did work, here's the problems with if it did work, 
And um, here's why we don't necessarily need that to get space travel, because it, it doesn't it doesn't work. Yeah, so. so speaking of a trillion dollars, Elizabeth Davis wants to know if you had a trillion dollars and could put it towards any scientific endeavor that you wished or endeavors of your choice, what you would choose. Oh, well, let's let's stick with something scientific or technological, because I can think of an awful lot of entirely selfish applications of that. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be kind of a toss up for me would be between um, various power generation options like. I think the world would benefit a lot from, you know, better batteries, uh, maybe space-based solar, just better solar panels in general, and um, nuclear power. That's one of the upcoming episodes is small modular reactors. I like the combination of those. Um, and then I really like the idea of space-based solar power, but I don't know if it's necessarily going to be the most economical approach in the near future. Um, and then uh, the other one I'd say that I'd probably be a big fan of longevity technology. So... Anything that extends life. And again, that's kind of a selfish one because as we say, it's like, what technology would you most like to see invented during your lifetime? Life extension technology. I'd like to live to see all these things. So, But that has its own problems with it if you haven't already solved some things like energy issues. Infernus Fair says, should we explore continuing genetic or combining genetic modification and cybernetic? I guess it does say combining them twice. They would like to know if we should combine genetic modification and cybernetics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're going to do them at all, right? There's always a question of, well, in the future we have these genetic supermen or these cyborgs wandering around and say, well, well, I'm sure there might be some people who say, I'm not going to have any machines in my body, but go ahead and, and play with my genes. And others are like, I'm fine with you hopping off my arm and replace it with some gigantic piece of metal, but don't play with my genes. Um, I think that most people who were okay with that would be fine with all of the above. And... Um, you know, like if you're okay with modification, there are probably all certain ways you wouldn't be okay with being modified. Like, I would not want my neurons replaced if I could avoid it. You know, I'd rather have them repaired or replaced by copies of themselves, not digital ones. But you know, if that was the option available, uh, you know, then I would go for that still too. I think you would see people using, you know, I think you'd see a lot more people who didn't want to do either than you'd find people who will either or. So most people would be yes to both, no to both, and a lot of handful would be. No to one or no to certain parts of one. So Sonobello says, what is your favorite alien species design-wise? Design-wise? Oh, God, that's tricky. Um, there are so many of them. Um, well, because if, if, if we're talking alien species, throughout the Vulcans, throughout the Klingons, they are, they are humans. They're just with a different forehead, right? There's nothing different about them other than they represent some kind of cliche cultural aspect uh, over the top hyperbolic representation of you know the Roman legions or scientists in general right um, which also kind of rules out almost everything from Babylon 5 or Mass Effect which are my favorites um, I'm kind of fond of the Asgard from Stargate but they are just little green men on purpose or gray men cool aliens cool aliens design wise and Nothing with that, we like, stumped yeah. the new president of the National Space Society, <laughs> Isaac Arthur, producer and author of Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, is stumped um, on what kind of alien is you his favorite You're coming design. back to that as a rabbit trail sometime later on in, in today's show. <laughs> on that note, uh, speaking of being the president of the National Space Society, Yoda Watt says, what are your plans for the National Space Society now that you are the president? 
Well, I tend to take the attitude that the best way when you get inside like an organization that you're new to in terms of leadership is not to pointlessly rock the boat. Um, and so I'm going to wait until I understand everything a lot better in terms of what the existing folks and structure really want to do and where we're aimed and then to then to do whatever was appropriate at that point in time. I don't have any plans yet, but I'm planning towards those plans. Another big one is space settlement. Um, fundamentally, in the NSS, the president plays the spokesman role. And the joke when they were offering position is that I'd already been doing it anyway for years uh, because I'd made um, you know, like the Becoming a No Planetary Species playlist, which is itself um, you know, basically the roadmap the NSS puts out only extended. Um, and you know, I plugged a lot of their events too just because I liked the organization. So fundamentally, the NSS's focus is about achieving human space settlement, which is a very long game. And that's a big goal of mine too. So it's mostly just raising awareness of them. And uh, a lot of ways, basically, what I already do. <laughs> so I have two quick questions to fit in before the break. Uh, actually, the first is more of a comment from April Van Ryan. Thank you for your super chat. And she says, I just wanted to say hi to everyone. I love the show. Thank you. <laughs> and this one is more of a, you know, how suicidal are you feeling today? Thank you for your super chat. Isaac, as a futurist, how is married life going so far? Oh, that's why. Okay. I was trying to figure that out. How suicidal are you feeling today? Um, you know, I'm coming up on my third is. anniversary, right? And one of the things they tell you when you, you know, you think about getting married is, well, the first two years are the best, and then it goes downhill. And then you other people say, well, the first year was the hardest year, and everything after that just kept getting better and better. And now that we are coming on our third anniversary next month, um, it has just gotten better and better. I really do enjoy that. I'm not just saying it because my wife is sitting right there in front of it me. It is a safe choice, so, though. It is a safe choice. Uh, well, you know, again, um, I'm not going to give people life advice in terms of marriage. I've only been at it for just under three years. But uh, I would say that if you treat like any other relationship out there, the big thing is just to remember never to take stuff for granted. You know, as long as you're constantly reminding yourself, um, you know, that you have somebody else who deserves your time, attention, patience, love, then you're probably going to get that returned as a good investment. So, I would concur. It's yeah. going wonderfully. And on that wonderful note, we shall go to our break. While we're on break, it's a great time to get some drinks and snacks, like we're doing here in the studio, as well as to get more questions into our moderators. As you may or may not be aware, I was recently elected the President of the National Space Society, with its many thousands of members and decades of hard work helping influence and shape space policy and our vision for space settlement. It is a serious honor and I'm looking forward to the opportunity. Needless to say, I'm pretty passionate about the topic, and in this era of renewed interest in growing presence in space, it is pretty awesome to be selected to help forge policy and our path to the stars. If you are interested in getting involved, there are a lot of local chapters, and like most groups these days, it's got a large online and virtual presence. I'll link it in the episode description. It did have me thinking on a question folks sometimes ask which is if I think space exploration and utilization over this next century will be more government funded or privately funded, and beyond that, if I'd expect space habitats and planetary settlements to be more public financed or private. And those are both tricky to answer since it would depend on how civilization itself moves. For instance, if civilization suddenly takes a big shift to Marxism or anarcho-capitalism, we could expect 100% exclusive public or private funding respectively, and otherwise we should assume a mix of both as we do now. I suspect we will see a lot of gray areas on projects in the, in the general notion of public-private partnerships, 
as in you expect the state to build the space elevator, and if not, then to assist with its funding or acquiring rights of way, but it wants regulatory control of it and priority access for moving troops or spy satellites or whatever up it. Same, it is very unlikely in the current environment we would just let someone say, this asteroid is mine to mine, or this region of Mars belongs to us, without being granted by some government entity that probably has treaties with other countries on it, but they also might be providing land grants and favorable loans to develop places. On the flip side of that, if space settlement got easy enough, you might have to deal with someone grabbing an asteroid on their own and claiming to be a sovereign entity and asking who if anyone would claim them or kick them out by force. Or on the private end of things, you might not have space marines or soldiers, but rather private mercenary groups that could be hired to do security or conquest. Sci-fi and history both give us lots of examples of this and other options for what's going on out on the frontier. My own hunch is that space settlement will be a fairly slow rollout over the next century and largely shifting to private companies handling launches and installations with the government regulating them and being their largest single client, but I think it won't be long before they shift from being the majority share of business to simply being the largest client base. We've got something like 200 countries out there who probably would like to have some sort of presence in space after all, and it is hard to imagine any other entity exceeding them. I would take for granted that early space settlement will be either entirely government funded or nearly so, but after a time I would expect that shift to more of that incentivization for settlement process, and that might get tricky as while there would be economic reasons for colonizing space, you might also see a major push for this or that group that wasn't well liked by most folks or didn't like them to want to move off to space, their promised land or utopia to be found or made there, those can overlap too. An asteroid mining prospect might be grabbed up by a political, ideological, or religious group seeking to be away from others and viewing this as their pathway to getting permission and funding, which might sound very pleasant or very irritating, depending on whether you're thinking of some idealized pioneering colony you would love to join, or some group of obnoxious lunatics you would love to see gone but don't really fashion as humanity's vanguard to the stars. But the good news is there is an awful lot of space out there, and when it comes to space habitats, the neat thing about them is that they are basically spaceships, so if you don't like your neighboring habitat, you can move. And with all that said, let's get moving on back to our live stream and more of your questions. Alright, and we're back. So we had a second question here from Christian Corello. Thank you again for the super chats, Christian. Is it more efficient to have space planes capable of both interstellar travel and atmospheric flight, or to have a separate spacecraft with space planes? Um, it does depend on if you, um, so this way, if you have sufficiently good technology, your your plane would take all the time it needed to go ahead and reassemble itself to, you know, be better suited. So you're you're coming in for your interstellar trip to get ready to land, and it turns into something that's very good at air breaking. And then, of course, when it's done doing that, it's going to turn itself into something that's better at flying out of the air than back into a spaceship. It might have a fairly mutable geometry, but more likely you don't actually use those on planets in the first place. You'd use something like an orbital ring space tether to get into space, and then from there you have your spaceship docked. So it would be nice to have one directly from your house, obviously, and that is potentially in, in the cards. I think, though, the you know, stellar spaceships in particular, those are more likely to be something that was parked in a high orbit and your interplanetary stuff too and you pretty much go up to low orbit and take a ship there and then you don't have to worry about if you're blowing gamma rays out the back of your spaceship from antimatter. <laughs> Nulono would like to know what you, the future of energy storage is both on large and a small scale. 
Oh, black holes. Ultimately, the future of energy storage is always black holes. Uh, but, um, you know, assuming that we don't get that magically cracked in the next, you know, however long. I mean, that might be something we figure out in the next, you know, century. Or it might be something that takes us millions of years. But um, I think that graphene battery storage is probably the big one. Uh, not just because it stores more, more power in a little device so much as it lets you charge and discharge it a lot faster. Um, and then power transmission to those would be a big thing. Um, so much depends on how you're actually generating and storing your power, though. So, like, molten salt's a good one if you want a solar economy and you don't get better batteries. If you find that you have limits on these things. And we can't always assume we're going to keep improving something. Um, if we don't get better electrical storage capacity, then you go to thermal storage capacity, which is molten salt. And there's just so many dependent factors on all of those, as well as to what are you trying to store it as. So, like... You could actually have a fusion-based economy where we sucked carbon dioxide and water out of the air or um, sea and turned it back into gasoline, just because gas is very energy dense um, and much easier to store than hydrogen, which is even more energy dense, uh, but doesn't like to stay in things. But there's another application of graphene. If we think that maybe graphene makes a good line of things to be able to storage tank for hydrogen. So, so much depends on on little tiny technological shifts that we can't predict yet for that. Speaking but, of a technological mm -hmm. shift, could you shift that little technological button well, real quick, please? Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to uh, read you the next question here from the Tyrant of Rune. Thank you for your super chat of 4.99. We definitely appreciate it. Do you think the future of humanity's technology is more biologically or mechanically, technologically inclined, or something else, like technologically non-available. Well, the last issue was still going on. Could you repeat that question real quick? We seem to okay. have technical issues. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was going out because it died on the computer screen in front of me. But uh, Tyrant of Rune, thank you for your super chat of 499. <laughs> Do you think the future of humanity's technology is more biological or mechanical? Um, to, biologically or mechanically technologically inclined um that's one of those ones where it gets into what people are comfortable about oh good technically or and we're back. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> so as a side note we got hit by a really bad storm last night in this whole area it actually knocked our greenhouse over which we've been busy building uh for all winter as well as tore the roof off our brother's barn and a bunch of other things the area got smashed so Right now, we're kind of glad we actually have power and, and actual landline capable transmission. If we disappear, that probably means the wind took it out. Um, do we go more mechanical than biological is drawing a possibly kind of a false or artificial dichotomy there. Um, you know, we... Isaac Asimov used to write a lot about, you know, a steel versus, uh, you know, carbon or iron-based you know, uh, life, right? He was thinking of robots being made out of steel. There weren't any semiconductors yet, so silicon wasn't on the radar. And so now we talk about silicon versus carbon-based you know, existence. And um, one of the big shifts you have to think of there is, at what point in time is an organism so engineered that it counts as mechanical? Right? At what point in time is something mechanical basically another life form, too, if it's self-repairing? And you're probably going to find with a civilization that in the near term, we try to keep it as much classically biological as we can, but that, that might start to fade or get gray in certain areas after a while. Um, in the long term, I think what you really have isn't so much mechanical versus you know, biological as purpose-built artifice versus generalized machinery. 
you know. Matt S., thank you for your super chat. He says, do you play video games, and are you familiar with Terra Invicta? Uh, less than I ever get to you any of these days. I don't get to play very many video games. Uh, I do know Terra Invicta, but mostly in the context of people telling me it was basically like, uh, the, you remember the board game Risk? Yes. Yeah, basically that, but the aliens. Um, <laughs> I don't know how fair that is, though. Um, but uh, I, I find Risk takes a very long time. We play that sometimes on board game nights, um, but, but I like the missions version better because it's so much shorter. The only video game I've played recently um, is Sinmio's Railroads, which is a 2006 game. And the only game I've actually thought I might have time for of late that I want to get was Oregon Trail. They apparently remade it. And I used to play that like crazy in the late 80s. So. Just like the idea of us having to eat all of the people going over the milk <laughs> yeah. mountain pass in Oregon. <laughs> we have two episodes coming up on cannibalism uh, in April. <laughs> so, That's horrible. Hive Wards and... Uh, what was this? Yeah, Hive Wards and... Hungry aliens, so yeah. Technically not cannibalism, though, as we discussed in that episode. Uh, but yeah, I, I love the Oregon Trail as a, as a kid, the, the, the history of it, but more the video game, uh, which was one of those old, well, I guess it was Apple IIe, not DOS, but uh, old, old pixelated text games. So I was kind of curious to see what the new, highly digital version looked like, but I very rarely had the time for video games anymore, sadly. Uh, I shouldn't say sadly. I have the time, but I enjoy a lot of other things more than the video games these days. Albert Jackinson says, Isaac, would orbital rings eventually displace aircraft travel for traveling around planets? I thought of the logistics of this, and I can't decide. Um, more likely, it would supplement them the same way you do with, like, trains. Right? Um, orbital rings and space towers are an amazingly good place to jump off of with, a, with an aircraft. And then pretty much glide down to any location you want. And also, because an orbital ring probably only needs to be about 40 miles off the ground to be safely circular around a planet in most places, you could actually achieve that with a plane, you know, especially with certain modifications. So you'd fly up to the orbital ring, refuel or hop on board a train that would ferry you to some other location, and then you'd jump off that and glide down the rest of the way or glide under power, which is flying to another location. And that would be very fast. It also would save you so much fuel, and um, you know I think the the biggest issue though is that again we were talking earlier about like urban travel options versus suburban or rural ones. Um, a space plane is something that you might be able to have in a in a suburban area if it had the ability to kind of turn off its bigger engines and and just basically use regular beam powered air travel for lower altitudes, so you don't get like the sonic booms as much. In a city, no flying cars. You're never going to have flying cars in a city like that. You'd have a tether, though, right from that city to the, the ring, for instance. And you could take that up like a tram line. And so we have a question then from Miami's Last Capitalist, and thank you also for your super chat. How much weight could an orbital ring really hold up? Could I dock? Could I own a dock for my personal spaceship there, or would it hold whole cities? It depends on how big it is. Um, you have to be careful how you distribute it because it's still made out of real structural materials. Um, essentially what's going on there is if I can orbit something, then I can uh, you know, sit on an orbital ring too because that's what you're really talking about. If I make an orbital ring that's got the mass of the moon and it's got the main piece of it moving around it twice orbital velocity inside there, then I can balance the mass of the moon on it but not in an individual location. I have to spread it out. And so, and that's enough mass to cover the entire planet, uh, what, some kilometers deep. I don't know, one eightieth of the uh, Earth's radius deep. So, <laughs> um, 
would be like 50 miles deep, 80 kilometers, something like that. So very deep. And if you can do that with a moon, then you can do that with something much smaller. Orion Spur, thank you also for your super chat, $5. What do you think David Favor's squadron actually saw, also known as the infamous Tic Tac UFO? Um, I think they saw a Tic Tac UFO. <laughs> you know, and this thing is, um, I don't like the entire conversation around those because to me, it's you, you're stuck in a position where you're having to question someone's individual witness testimony. And as I like to remind people, um, just because you're in the military doesn't make you an expert observer, and just because you fly planes doesn't mean you have any idea what something flying through the sky looks like or means any more than you've been driving a car for your whole life and can thus identify any ground-based object. Um, you cannot tell how fast things are going or how quickly they are turning by eyeball alone. It, it's just not something you can do. But what their equipment says or what their you know, measurements might say in context with other people's measurements that gets a little bit trickier. Are there things that could do the job? Um, hmm. There's just not enough data to really make an observation about that. You could say, well, who might be able to actually spoof them with some piece of equipment and show it off? Possibly another piece of the U.S. military. You know, like they're going to come out like, well, we were trying to see how stealthy this was, so we decided to run up against the thing most likely to be able to detect it, one of our own aircraft carrier fleets. And then, well, should we tell you about that? No, let's keep our stealth system secret still, please. That's the sort of thing that could easily happen. Or another country might do it, right? Uh, if it were alien, uh, what could it be? Well, you got a lot of examples of things that could do those kind of high-G tones they talk about. Um, and without necessarily having a glow, a missile. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that impressive to do things like that. Uh, something that's got, say, a carbon graphene sail that uses a parachute could suddenly deploy something like that ultra-thin and do a braking maneuver that was very, very fast. There's all sorts of weird options that become on the table at that point in time, even without leaving the area of known science, which is always available. It's going to be someone's anti-gravity-driven alien spaceship. I don't think it is, but as when people say, what do you think it is? I have no idea. No clue at all. I can only kind of look at the loose options that anyone already knows. Ever Toaster, thank you for your super chat of five pounds. If you had a spaceship which could accelerate at 1G... Would you be able to travel anywhere in your lifetime? And I'm going to rephrase that to say, would you be able to travel everywhere in your lifetime? If you're a spaceship that could travel at 1G? Correct. And it could just do it infinitely. Um, ignoring all the problems you'd have with doing that, after about one year of traveling at 1G, you've reached the speed of light. Now, you haven't actually reached it, but you'll have hit that place where you're actually having massive time slowdown to the point where you can reach places very quickly. So basically... And then you need a, a year to decelerate from that. It means all your travels take two years of your own time. <clears throat> and that means you can get anywhere in the universe in two years, uh, other than the place that over the cosmological horizon, from your perspective. Uh, but the problem is that you still have to do the real-time journeys there. So you can do every trip you want to, so long as it's two years apart. And that means that if you want to go revisit someplace, it might be tens of thousands of years before you get there again, but it always seems like two years to you. And There's 100 billion stars in this galaxy alone, more than that, so you cannot reach them all at that speed because, you know, 200 billion years of your personal time uh, and the infinite tens of thousands of additional times that of actual travel time, and they're all gone by then. All right. Not provided, again, <laughs> provided a super chat of $10. Thank you. Where did you get that funny clip of the blue alien with tentacles in his dimly lit lab rummaging through his lab equipment, and can you show it more often? I 
you know, I feel like I use that clip about as often as I can reasonably get away with without getting too boring. Um, you have a 30 minute science show that comes out once a week and you don't have a Pixar like budget. You end up reusing a lot of clips. And I love that one, the crazy alien one with tentacles. There's three of those clips. I wish someone put more of them out there. I'm going to guess those were off of story blocks, um, that they could have been Pixar Bay. There's a handful of sites I get stock footage off of, including Getty. Um, and then after I use them enough times, I pretty much remember them as that clip. And there's tags on somebody where it's actually at, but probably, probably story blocks. <laughs> Do you like the blue alien feature the best? I love the crazy tentacle alien. He's weird, yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Um, just looking through here to Although my see. favorite alien clip is the one that we, you know, I'm going to try to like, put it up on screen right now because that will probably not work out well. Um, but uh, it's the one that Ken York did where it's got the three Roswell-style aliens drinking at a table and one of them passes out after the old joke that uh, alien beer it's to die for on uh, the assumption that you could pretty much never actually drink e aliens uh, alcohol or the substances they grow because it would instantly poison you and die <laughs> <laughs> Sonobella says disregarding budget practicality and common sense which is a lot of disregards how much destructive power could you cram into a terminator like android under known physics Unknown physics? Okay. So and it's got an antimatter bomb hidden inside doesn't count. I was about to say an antimatter power source. Um, so instead of giving an antimatter bomb inside, you give an antimatter power source. Or, barring that, if we're not going to let you use antimatter specifically, um, a small self refueling hockey black hole in the ton range, which should have a lifespan of less than a second. Um, <laughs> So, yes, better than antimatter, since we have a size limitation, a big black hole inside the thing. Would that be kind of uh, loud when it's... Absolutely cheating. Uh, no, it wouldn't be loud, um, unless, it, unless it stopped getting its fuel supply, in which case it would explode and take out that continent, I believe. So. Okay. So, yeah. so and I... then you have that running rail guns. Uh, I but think you're the saying idea, that I mean... since it would be so loud... And you would be totally blown up. It, it would not actually hurt your ears. Right. I think it would be above, above sound at that point in time. Um, <laughs> some volcanoes have their things like the maximum. The maximum decibels you can have in normal air is like 192. At that point in time, the, I can't remember the specific effects, but basically it's it, it, the pressure wave is too high to actually conduct sound normally in air. So. <laughs> I think we're actually wrapping up the questions here. We have one from Apple Wolf. Uh, thank you for your $5 super chat. Dead space games disregarding the necromorphs, how probable is it, or is it too exaggerated, in its resource scarcity? And thanks for what you do. Um, I don't really know the specific case well enough to be able to answer that one, because it's kind of a fictional one. But basically, every sci-fi setting that's going for the, like, um, I'm an asteroid trader, or I'm a mercenary travels wards with my battle mech, or my personal spaceship mining asteroids, resource scarcity of that scale is just not realistic it's it's a wild west kind of flavoring um you know you're trading those little pots and pans around on your ship or whatever it is your tinker or any of those kind of things have way too way too scarce for resources it's like the um in the expanse with like we we're running out of air and water and so you have spaceships with actual fusion torch drives on them you will never run out of air and water ever it's it's Basically saying, well, I have enough water to do my entire farm, but for some reason I can't find any to drink for myself. I just need a million more gallons for my farm, but where can I get one clean cup of water? It, it doesn't fit. You know? 
Andy Black asks how many Starship launches it would take to build an ISV from James Cameron's Avatar. Oh, God, I don't even know how massive that thing was. Um, uh, you know, we actually have Avatar coming up in our Life on Giant Moons episode um, in a couple of weeks because we're going to talk about Pandora there. Um, those movies are probably, I would say, probably more romanticized view of, of uh, visiting other alien planets than realism. You've got an alien planet around Alpha Centauri um, that has a unique resource found nowhere else in the universe. I don't think any other type of realism was really on their zone right there when they were putting that thing together. Um, and uh, I know Stephen Baxter did a, a Science of Avatar book, and he's obviously top-notch in his realism, but still, I don't think we saw it there. Um, trying to put something, something like a Super Orion drive in space, you know, we might have to have an entire megaton of, of spaceship or more, several megatons of spaceship, um, then you say, well, we can make up, say, I don't know what the exact carrying capacity of the shuttle was, but let's say 50 tons of flight. And in which case, if you need to get a million tons up there for a very big ship, you've got to have 2,000, 2,000 flights. Or 20,000 flights. So 20,000 flights. Bit of an order of magnitude difference there. That's a lot of flights. That's more than we've ever had to space in my resource. We had a... a interesting question here when you're talking about the speed of light. Silco says, what do you think the damage of a small needle can do accelerated to 20 to 50 percent of the speed of light? A small needle? It can go right through someone um, and maybe kill them from the radiation damage. Um, one of the things we have like needle guns and, and they have those in Battletech. I think you have like Mecha series from earlier. They shoot people with a needle gun which tie the little, you know, basically like a tank sabo but it's a sabo but only much smaller. And if you shot someone through the head with a needle, there's a very good chance you wouldn't kill them, uh, even right through their brain, uh, just because it's not actually doing that much damage. It's like um, if you had a big solo sail and it got hit by micrometeors, what would happen to it? And the answer was very little. It would just have a small hole in it. Um, it's not just about how fast something goes, and this is the issue you have with bullets when you say, well, uh, you want a fast bullet. You don't actually want a bullet that necessarily is armor-piercing to shoot someone with because what you mostly get is a small hole through them as opposed to actually damaging them as much as you were aiming for. Um, and I think you have that same problem with something like a needle, for instance. Now, if you're shooting at a planet, you're going to deliver all that energy into that planet with a you know, super relativistic needle, uh, which would be quite a lot. It's just this mass energy at that point, um, in which case you can go ahead and convert that into however many tons or megatons of kinetic energy it has. Uh, but don't necessarily assume that's going to go through a target uh, the way we expect them to just blow up from it. Um, I'm pretty sure if you got hit by a relativistic needle as a person, you would die. But um, I'm not actually 100% positive without running the numbers that that is the case. It might just be like you get a born hole through you lightsaber style. After all, when you hit by photons going at light speed, that doesn't necessarily kill you either. I think that looks like it wraps up all of the uh, main questions for today. Um, Do we have non-main questions? <laughs> there is always a lot of chat in the uh, chat, and so maybe you can pop in later and make a few comments. But I think that looks like uh, wrapping up the questions. All right. So on that note, we will go ahead and switch off, and we will see everybody for our upcoming episode, which is Advanced Spaceship Drive Compendium, which I believe, I think I keep probably two hours long, but... Not, it's an hour and 40 minutes, so it'll be our second longest episode ever, and uh, Sarah's in that too. So <laughs> we will go ahead and sign off for that. 
And everyone, I will see you on Thursday, and then presumably Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, unless you actually have time to watch all that in a row. <laughs> so, have a great weekend. <laughs>